All right, tonight we're speaking with Simon Hill, the English football presenter who you'll hear calling Australia's highest level of football, the A-League, on the country's biggest sports network, Fox Sports. He's also a contributor for World Soccer Magazine. An expat and heavy metal fan like myself, uh, who now calls Australia home, he's previously worked for both the ITV and BBC television networks in England. How are you tonight, Simon? I'm very good, Jesse. Nice to be with you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, as we are saying just before we record, it's... Um, pretty quiet time of the world i suppose you could say uh, it's it's the evening at the moment and we were asking you about um you know what's keeping you busy because you would sort of normally uh be prepping you'd have games friday typically through sunday working so uh what are you doing at the moment not much uh to be honest um you know a couple of these uh, zoom interviews which uh, have been welcome um i have done a couple of games uh, using the new technology, using my laptop here that I'm speaking to you on, uh, did a game from Korea about a month ago, uh, using some new technology from Grabio, um, where they pump the pictures live into your laptop and you literally call it from your front room. And I did the same thing for a game in the Northern Territory um, last uh, Friday night. So I've not been totally uh, lack, uh, lacking in work, but um, yeah, obviously, you know, the norm would be uh, this time of year, well, we'd, we'd be finished with the A-League at this time of year. Um, but uh, we're still waiting for the A-League to resume, hopefully not too far away. So what is the, what is the technology? I mean, the way that you're talking about it, uh, is it more than streaming, I guess, to, to your computer and how you're able to continue to work at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's straight, live streaming straight to your, your laptop, basically. I mean, you, you get a, a code that you log into and... Uh, the pictures come up on your screen. Um, you have a headset with a little microphone, and um, yeah, you, you call the game as normal, but just from the comfort of, of your own home. It's uh, it's new technology. Uh, it's interesting. I think there are still you know a couple of flaws to to work out in terms of the audio. And uh, we had an issue on Friday night where where the pictures crashed because somebody dialed into the number that I was on. And but but I think these are all you know, uh, teething problems. And I think in future, we're going to see a lot more of this because it doesn't just help, you know, during a lockdown period, but uh, also clearly it's better economically for broadcasters as well, uh, not to be sending commentators, you know, flying around the country as we do most weeks. Um, I hope we're not going to lose the um, in-stadium experience completely because that's, you know, part of the joy of being a commentator is actually being at the game. But uh, I understand that, uh, you know, the current climate, maybe uh, it's going to be something we do more frequently. What's, um, what's the difference between all the roles between a, a commentator, an analyst, a color commentator? Good question. Um, so a lead commentator, if you want to put it that way, or a play-by-play -play commentator, which is what I do, you know, you, you literally call the action. You say the names and you describe happening now in radio where I used to work many years ago that's probably a, a more labor-intensive job because clearly people can't see the pictures so you're having to describe not just who's on the ball but where the ball is on the pitch um, in television you're sort of talking around the action a little bit more um, but that's the role of the play-by-play -play commentator to literally describe what, what the viewer is seeing and to you know call the names uh, hopefully correctly uh, an analyst is, or a co-commentator, is also the same terminology. Um, in my case, that'll be a, a Robbie Slater or an Andy Harper or a Ned Zelich. 
they're there really to offer their technical expertise because, of course, they played the game at the very highest level, whereas I haven't. So they can perhaps see things on a football field that uh, I don't or, or the layman at home doesn't. I'm talking in terms of tactics or you know, maybe switches and systems that the coach has made. So that's what they're there for, essentially. Um, and, you know, there are lots of other little roles around it, sort of sideline commentator, who is basically the eyes and ears of us down on the, on the sideline. They might be listening to what the coach says or they've seen something in the crowd or something in the peripheral vision that the commentator might be too far away to, to get a full grip on. So... Um, yeah, each person has his or her role, and uh, if it all works smoothly, then hopefully you have a decent broadcast. And uh, it's a pretty coveted role to be able to get to call football. Uh, there's a lot of people I know that would like to do that. What, what's your story? How did you get involved in the game, and then how do you sort of end up? How, how do you end up at ITV, then BBC, and then decide that you're going to fly over to you know the bottom corner of the world where we're located now to take on a role? Have you got a wall? I you, do. You might, we've we've got time. I, I told you I've got a couple of drinks here. I've got time. <laughs> <laughs> so where I started with football, um, obviously growing up in Manchester in, in Northern England, football is, is part of our DNA. Uh, the old joke is, is that you, when you're a baby, you get dipped in the River Irwell in Manchester or the Ship Canal and you come out either red or blue, uh, City or United. Now, I, I didn't have any cho- choice really as to who I supported because... My dad was and still is at 85, a huge Manchester City fan. My granddad was a City fan all his life. And my great granddad actually played for them in 1892, even before they were known as Manchester City. They were known as Ardwick FC. So you can see that there's you know, a long family uh, lineage of, of supporting that particular football club. Uh, when I was five or six years of age, my dad, as his dad had done with him, took me to see City. Uh, and I fell in love, not just with, with my club, but with, with the game. And from that moment on, really, I've been inseparable from it. Um, I played, uh, obviously, as many kids do for my school and a couple of clubs when I was growing up. I pretty much knew I wasn't going to be a professional footballer at the age of 12. When a Manchester City scout uh, came to watch a game that I was taking part in, he didn't even look at me. So... I knew even at that age that that dream was over. <laughs> and so it was, it was about really, you know, what's the next best thing? How to stay involved in football? Because I loved it so much. So I think even from that age, I was, you know, set on a, on a career in the media with an eye really to being a football journalist. I, I wanted to write. Uh, I, I really had no interest in broadcasting. That sort of came about by accident, really. Um, but yeah, I, I went to Portsmouth, studied, did my degree, and then did a postgrad in, in written journalism and started writing match reports on the Portsmouth youth team down for a paper called The News on the south coast of England. And uh, then got my big break in 1991. I got a job as a sports reporter for uh, a little radio station in South Wales called Red Dragon. So that's where it all started. Then I went to the BBC and then I went to ITV. Um, and then in 2001, uh, I, I joined ITV in 2001 after nearly a decade with the BBC. And unfortunately, after a year, the ITV Sport Channel, which was the network I worked for, went into administration. Uh, they didn't, unfortunately, have a very good business plan. So 
in 2002, I was sort of un- unemployed. I, I freelanced for about six months. And I, I was actually offered a job by Sky Sports in the UK. Uh, but at the same time, a friend of mine who I'd worked with at the BBC and who'd emigrated to Australia many years earlier got in touch with me and said, look, there's a job here as a, as a football commentator. I think you should go for it. Uh, and of course, at the time, I said, you know, why would they want me? I'm some unknown from the other side of the earth. Um, I'd only ever been to Australia for five days prior to that. But he went on about it so much that in the end I said, look, I'll send in a CV and a showreel, really to keep him quiet more than anything else. Um, so I did that. And uh, to my utter astonishment, they were back in touch within a couple of weeks and were very interested. And uh, at the time, you know, I wasn't married. I had no kids. Still have no kids. Um, so in, in 2003, I thought, well, you know, what the heck? I'd always wanted to live overseas, uh, knew nothing about Australia or about football here, um, but it, I just saw it as a great opportunity and a great life experience. I only expected to stay two or three years, really, mm. but 17, 17 years later, I'm still here. So what, what year was that? Did you say that was 2003 at the time? Right? 2003, January 2003, I, I moved across. And it was minus five in London, where I was living at the time. <laughs> yeah. And it was 25 in Sydney. So it was quite a culture shock. <laughs> and what was going on at the time? Because A-League a was still about a year away from being started. Were you being mm. brought in to do that? Or were you being brought in to do um, you know, the national team football? Well, to be honest, I, I was brought in... Um, to perform a, a sort of a multitude of roles, really. At the time, SBS, they had the national team rights. Um, they didn't even have the rights when I arrived to the old National Soccer League, the forerunner of the A-League. Um, but they did have the Champions League. They did have the Premier League and one or two other bits and bobs. And, of course, they had this five-hour football show on a Sunday called the World Games. So my job was not only to commentate games as and when they needed it, but also to host on the world game and to report and chase stories. So in the early years, my, my role was sort of multifunctional. I also presented on the generic sports show, Toyota, Toyota World Sport, which blimey, finished a long time ago now. So it was, yeah, it was sort of like a, a utility role, really. Um, and then... Um, in 2005, of course, the A-League started and I, I was still at SBS then because uh, the, the World Cup was coming up in 2006. So I did the World Cup and in Germany, which was obviously one of the highlights of my life. And, uh, and then Fox you know, indicated that they were interested in, in bringing me across to be a, a full-time A-League commentator and host. So uh, obviously that was what I did. Interesting. Okay. Um- there's a few probably a really good stories that you can shed some light on uh, being able to share more of the history of the game than so- someone like me uh, would know. I-, I guess before we get on to City, which I'm sure you can uh, bandy on about for a long time, Portsmouth is pretty interesting. I remember when I, I lived over there for about two and a half years and there was a very, uh, the two sort of football stories I remember while I was there was, was Portsmouth going bankrupt and then also... Uh, Wimbledon losing their club to was it was it MK Dons that they ended up selling yep. off the the rights to? Yep. Um, I mean, someone who who went to school there. Do you want to just shed take us through the, the Portsmouth story because they're effectively a a cooperative team now, if I'm not mistaken, are they? Yeah, they are. Um, <clears throat> Portsmouth is actually a club that's uh, very close to my heart because, as I've outlined, I, I studied in Portsmouth. 
uh, lived in the city for four years. Um, I still go back regularly to the city. I have friends there still. Um, and it's a wonderful old football club. Uh, the ground, Fratton Park, it's, it's very rickety. It's almost falling down in places. Uh, but it's, it's got a real old style feel. And me coming from the north of England, where football is you know, pretty much passionate in every single town, there was always a feeling in the north that the, the southerners you know, weren't that fussed about it, really. They were a little bit lukewarm in their, in their passion. Well, I can tell you that Portsmouth is the closest thing to a northern town you'll get down south. I mean, they love their football club. Um, and when I was a student there, I used to go and watch them quite regularly. I always became a bit of a fan of the club, not, not in the same way as Man City, because that will always be my team, but um, I became quite close to them. And then obviously started my journalistic career by working uh, with, the, with the club. Uh, it's, it's very close to my heart. Unfortunately, in common with uh, a lot of clubs a few years ago, even, even to the present day, really, they got into financial difficulty. They overstretched themselves they got one of these, um, uh, you know, big big money owners from overseas into to finance the club, and and he ran out of cash. And um, once that happens, they were in dire straits. Uh, they slipped down the leagues, and uh, you know they were pretty close to to going out of business altogether. So the fans, being very passionate about their club, uh, decided, and this is not unique. A few clubs have done this that they were going to buy the club themselves and run it themselves. Mm. Um, so that's what they did. Now, uh, I, I stand to be corrected on this, but I do think they, have, they do now have an investor. I think he's American. I, I'd, I'd need to check on all that. But they, they have got a benefactor now. But the club still uh, has the supporters uh, holding a significant share of the club. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's a good way of doing things because a football club really is, it's for the supporters. It's for the town, the community. And, you know, too many of these uh, big, filthy rich owners, they come in with all sorts of promises. But once the money runs out, they leave the club in dire straits. And we've seen that story sort of repeat itself uh, many times in the UK, unfortunately. But Portsmouth is still with us, which is great. Um, the Wimbledon story is, is a little bit more complex in that um, they sold their own, their old ground at Plough Lane, which was very run down and too small, uh, on the premise of the, the fact that we're going to build a new one. They are The new club is actually going to build a new one now. But back in the day, uh, they couldn't find a new site to, to build a new ground. They were playing at places like Charlton and Crystal Palace. Their fan base was dwindling because, of course, they were having to travel a long way to support their team. Mm. And in the end, they decided to sell to a businessman in Milton Keynes, a guy called Pete Winkleman. Now, uh, they moved the club, essentially lock, stock and barrel, from southwest London to Milton Keynes. And a lot of people in England feel that that was the first sort of example of franchising, American-style franchising coming to English football. And they don't like it. And I'm with them. Um, that was a very historic football club, Wimbledon FC. They, they now exist, they, they formed a Phoenix club and remarkably, and this is again a tribute to the supporters, they've come all the way through all the non-leagues and they're back in the football league. In fact, um, I think they're a division higher than MK Dons are now. Yeah, it was so, pretty much every year from their inception, they, they just popped up a league. They were constantly promoting the, the, themselves on the way yeah. up, were they not? And, and that shows you the depth of commitment and passion that these supporters have for their football club. 
Um, but, but what happened really was distasteful. And uh, the, the English FA, I think they should have stepped in and said, no, you can't move a club 60 miles north. You can move within its locale, but really it has to be the same essence of the club. And what really irritated Wimbledon fans was when they moved to Milton Keynes, they took all the history with them. All That's the, what I was going to go on, yeah. The memorabilia, I think, and again, I stand to be corrected, I think they've got those things back or they're in the process of getting those things back for the new AFC Wimbledon, which is only right and proper. I, I was over there at that time and I remember the, the, I think the general manager of the team was, his name was Ivor, I think, and sat down and talked to him about this. And, uh, uh, Egil, Egil Olsen, was that? No, I think I think no. He was a, he was a fan, and I think ended up working through the club on the rebuilding. And um, who was the big guy? The guy who was like the the bodybuilder that they used as a forward there for a number. Um, John Fashionate. No, I I, I can Fabi or something. I can't remember, but I got to see them play when I was over there. So we had friends. Uh, they lived in Wimbledon, and then we went and stayed with them at their holiday home in the Isle of Wight, which is how we ended up passing through Portsmouth while while living there at, at the time how I got involved in a little bit understanding a little bit more about this history. Um, not to take away from Wimbledon, but uh, a, a memory that I distinctly remember while I was over there is MK Dons beating United four nil. And I think some for, I think it was an FA cup. I can't remember if it was an FA cup or what would have been the capital one cup at the time. And um, Just the, the fascination around that. Uh, you talk about, you know, Northern England and um, football fans in Manchester. Do you find that any sort of relation? Because, Really, the only two places in the world where the sport of rugby league has a hold is either here in Australia or in the northern parts of England. Was that um? Is there is there any um, correlation, I guess, between those two parts of the world, and, and I guess the the similar love of sport that you found being over here? Um, <clears throat> in some ways, I mean, um, I sort of grew up with rugby league to an extent, because I actually grew up in a, in a town called Warrington. So, you know, they're, they're, their senior sports club is a rugby league team. So it was always sort of there, but football is so dominant in the UK, even in rugby league areas, really, that uh, leagues sort of exist to complement uh, uh, the, the sport of football. There's not really a, a rivalry between the sports. The one thing I found when I came here is just, it wasn't so much the apathy towards football. I sort of expected that because I knew that Australia wasn't a, a traditional football country, if you want to put it that way. But what really surprised me was the antipathy towards football. You know, it wasn't just that they weren't interested in it. They just did, they really didn't like it, those who didn't like it. Um, and that still sort of shocks me too today. There's a, a little bit of identity politics all wrapped up in that and a bit of cultural warfare because it's seen as not being an Australian game, uh, which is ridiculous because, you know, rugby league is not an Australian game. Cricket is not an Australian game, let's mm. be honest. It's an English game. Uh, but they have no problem with that. Um, so th there's some synergy. I mean, you know, the, the working class areas uh, of the north, I grew up in a working class area, um, that, that, that's replicated in parts of Australia. Um, I don't know. It's, it's an odd one. I don't know why rugby league should be so prevalent here and in the north of England, but literally nowhere else. Um, there is a I mean, real divide, know, isn't there? Years. There seems to be a line in England where it's northern England where league has a foothold, and in the rest of the country it really doesn't at all, does it? Well... 
it's not even a line sort of, you know, cutting the, the country in half. <clears throat> it's actually a corridor. They call it the M62 corridor. Okay. Um, I mean, even in the northeast of England, up in Newcastle, the northwest, little bits, far northwest. But, you know, they, they don't really play that much rugby league in Newcastle or Sunderland or Middlesbrough, those traditional football towns. So it's, it's a very small sliver of, of, uh, of the UK, of England specifically, Mm. that plays rugby league and you know it's sort of similar here really i mean it's brisbane sydney canberra far north queensland well i've got the term the, the brassy line i think which denotes between afl yeah. and, and league here which is interesting but yeah i mean i think you know obviously the maybe maybe we're talking culturally here maybe australians um you know we're gravitating more towards rugby league because it was seen as more egalitarian than a rugby union, for example, which mm. is always seen as the gentleman's sport or the officer's sports, the, you know, the sport of uh, the private schools, <laughs> certainly the way in the UK as well. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm not quite sure, you know, why rugby league is, is so big on the Eastern seaboard. Um, and look, I have no problem with, you know, rugby league or Aussie rules for that matter. Um, but they seem to have a problem with us. They it's don't true. like us very much. Uh, I, I, I was a convert to the game. I wasn't always a football fan, as I mentioned, when we went to go live over there. I found expat Australians who wrote me into the me into the arsenal and then we we're off once actually going to watch it i got it over there it's um even though i'm canadian everyone talks about how much canadians love hockey and i do as well but culturally football is so much more intrinsic and um you know we, we traveled europe but we didn't live anywhere else but the the system the promotion relegation the way that but england's got 250 clubs which in theory at any point in time could compete in the premier league if they work their way up it's it's quite a um it's quite a fascinating structure as an outsider and especially as a newfound fan during trade season, when they're bringing in people from countries you barely knew existed talking about their numbers, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. The, the, the good scouts at teams must get paid a bucket load to be able to find people in, you know, remote islands that can have a 28 uh, goal season. Um, I mean, we'll talk about football more. Are there any other sports that, that you're partial to or are you predominantly football in terms of, uh, you know, being a fan? Um, I'm predominantly football. Uh, you know, growing up uh, in my journalistic career, I worked on many sports. I've covered Wimbledon a couple of times. Uh, I've done cricket finals at uh, uh, Lords. Uh, I covered World Championship boxing. I even did the Le Mans 24-hour car race many, many right. years ago. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you're going through the system, you, you have to obviously turn your hand to quite a few things like golf as well, um, all, all sorts of things. But, uh, you know, football has always been my number one sport. I did actually host the, the, the Ashes here for, when I worked at SBS in 2005, the cricket series, which was mm. uh, good fun. But, no, I mean, for the last 10, 15 years, particularly, um, it, it's been football and I wouldn't have it any other way. How do you try to navigate that? I mean, as you said, if there's sports that you don't know and they say, oh, hey, we've got, a, we've got cars that you're going to do. In a couple of weeks, you're going to comment on the cars. How do you prepare yourself for, um, well, I know in, in my case, really make yourself not sound like an idiot when being live? Pretty much. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all about research. 
Uh, and it's the same, you know, even in my day job of football. I mean, I've worked in football for goodness knows how many years, but, uh, you know, I was I told you I did that game in Korea four or five weeks ago. Of course, I, I don't call John Book Motors or Sue on Blue Wings every day of my work in life. Mm. So I had to research. Um, so I, I did. And I think it's the same for any sports. If, if you can give yourself a, a decent grasp of what the tournament is, who the players are, what the context of what you're seeing is, then you, you can, you know, as long as you're a good enough broadcaster, you can, I won't say get away with it, but you can, you can pass muster. Um, and, you know, obviously there are certain things that hold true for, you know, most sports. If you ask a decent question, then, you know, you'll get plaudits. If you ask a terrible <laughs> one, it doesn't matter what sport you're working in. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, the, the process is the same pretty much for, for every sport. But, uh, you know, clearly the, the longer you work in one, which in my case is football, the more you tend to know about it. Mm. All right. Um, talk to me a little bit about City. So, again, as, as, a, as a relatively recent convert to the game, probably within the last decade, I certainly know Man United. But City um, seemed to be the team that took a backseat to them that – in the last few years, with Arab money, they've turned themselves into a, a powerhouse club beginning probably about a decade ago. And I also know them because apparently Oasis supports them, not that I'm a fan of the band or anything. However, they, they seem to, um, I guess, a, a similar story to Chelsea, who I'm told was always sort of a, um, a behind-the-scenes type of team that, that didn't have the same sort of success that you'd expect that's just come out blazing in the last what, 10, 10 to 15 years. Well, this is a common misconception, of course, that City is a club that has no history. And I'm just going to move my head a little bit and show you this thing on the wall behind <laughs> me. Uh, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question, but this, uh, this picture is of Manchester City winning the FA Cup in 1934 and being presented with the old cup by King George. So that shows you, I mean, that's just one little example, but... You know, City is a club that has a, a very long history, um, formed in 1894 um, as Manchester City. And, you know, we had periods in the distant past where we were successful, maybe not quite as successful as Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal, but City have always been one of the, the big clubs in England. Um, it's true also that in the 80s and particularly 90s, um, we dropped a long way. As recently as 1999, we were, you mentioned promotion relegation, we were down in the third tier. Um, right. I went most weeks uh, that, that particular season. I was <clears throat> driving up from London to, to see them, and, you know, games against Chesterfield and York City and Wrexham. Um, and they were, you know, they were pretty dark days. So it, it, it does rile me a little bit when people say, oh, you know, the, this new club that's all of a sudden found success. Well, we... We've rediscovered success. Um, I, back I, in the late 60s, early I 70s. I worded my, my question poorly because I know that they've been around for a century, but I think you understand what I mean, that, that they, they have not had the... They, uh, Manchester United as a North American is sort of the comparison to what you'd expect from like the Chicago Bulls during their time with Jordan and Beckham. And, and I just mean, for most people, they're unaware that there was a second team also around at that time. Well, that's unfortunate um, because, as I say, you know, they, I, look, I understand that United has more of a, a global feel, maybe a little bit less so these days because City has sort of have come up fast over the last 10, 15 years. 
United were all, always this global entity, and that was largely built, not exclusively, but largely built on, on the back of a tragedy, which was the Munich air disaster in 1958, mm. where they, you know, they lost uh, a whole heap of players that were really at the top of their game at the time. <clears throat> So there, there, was a, there was a wave of, of, of global sympathy for the club and people sort of, you know, latched onto them a bit. Ten years later, they won the European Cup. So that sort of cemented their place, again, globally as, as, a, as a big club. And they were also, to be fair to them, you know, not only successful in terms of winning Premier Leagues and FA Cups, etc., under Sir Alex Ferguson and European Cups as well, but they were also one of the first clubs to explore... Uh, global branding um, you know they introduced things like the red cafe in Singapore and um, really connected with their overseas fan base because they were a club that could do that now city at the time were I remember the, there was a phrase city with a club that stayed at home within the, the boundaries of Greater Manchester where I'm from uh, there are probably similar numbers of city and United fans in fact you know many city fans believe there are more city fans in Manchester than United. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it's certainly true that <clears throat> City, while it has a, a big fan base of its own, was uh, pretty much the club that was local to Manchester. Um, so the two clubs sort of, you know, went their separate ways around the 50s. Prior to that, actually City, historically, were the more successful club. Um, and certainly the bigger club. I don't know if you know this, but pr uh, post-war as well, um, Old Trafford was actually bombed by the Luftwaffe and United came and played at Main Road. They shared City's ground. Um, and up until I think the, the 50s and 60s, a lot of, a lot of people in Manchester, <clears throat> my grandfather included, would go and watch City one week and United the next. Um, there wasn't really the same enmity between the two clubs. That sort of came a bit later in the 60s when... Uh, you know, the modern era arrived. So you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating history. Um, obviously, I, I know it very deeply because I'm, I'm from that part of the world. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, of course, the success that City are having at the moment is, is wonderful for us. And I'm not stupid enough not to believe that if it weren't for the money, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. There is also part of me that actually misses the old city. Um, you know, there, there was a, a very Northern British humour a gallows humour in being uh, perpetually crap and, you know, going to these places and having a laugh with other City fans because we were always so bad. And we had this great contrast down the road um, of Manchester United, the great beer moth that were, you know, winning trophies. I'll give you one little example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Back in 1999, when we were in the third tier, uh, City were playing in the Auto Windscreen Shield, which is a competition for third and fourth division clubs, right. uh, since been renamed. And on the same night, United played, I think, Inter Milan in the Champions League. There were 75,000 at Old Trafford, and across town, I was one of the 4,000 that went to watch us against Mansfield, and we lost. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, but I remember thinking, I don't care what the contrast is, I'm going to bloody well be there tonight because my club needs me. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of ingrained, you know, tribalism that was uh, injected into me from, from the time I could walk. <laughs> I just, when you're talking about this, I actually have a photo um, 
with the premiership trophy because when I was living over there, I think did City win in twenty thirteen? I think they were the is that the 20, year? 2012 and twenty fourteen. So it would have been twenty twelve. So I went to the Soccer X convention that, that they hold it in um I think it was being held in Manchester that year. And they, they got all there and they were the, the trophy holders for it. Um there's quite a, f- a few things to, to talk about in there from a time period that, that I'm unfamiliar with. One of which, well, I guess when we talk about modern football now, and I guess we're going to begin to see this um, uh, only because I've got you on the line. I'm really interested in talking to you about historically about English football and all sort of the questions that I have and kind of uh, driving that into, into A-League football. Um, you mentioned that, that the role of a football team should be to serve the community. Uh, What's the relevance of that these days when you hear about a player who's on a contract of 150,000 pound a week? And the fact that, um, like, as I said, even when I was living over there, I had to buy an Arsenal red membership, which was the basic level membership to, for the opportunity to get tickets to games that, so you had to buy in at a 60,000 seat stadium for the option to, to get tickets to a game? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I say I do miss the old city. And by that, I also mean I miss the old football, um, where the clubs were much more of an intrinsic part of their community. Having said that, and I'll use the city as an example, and yes, we've been bought out by the trillionaires from the UAE, and city today is is unrecognizable from the club that's that I grew up supporting but in some ways they they do still connect to the community and these are things that don't necessarily make for sexy headlines Yaya Toure getting 200,000 pounds a week on his salary is a sexy headline but uh, the owners investing in uh, a local library in Manchester which they have done on the edge of the Etihad complex that's not a sexy headline Um, building entertainment for fans pre-game on the apron of the stadium, having former players, themed bars, um, places for kids to play Xbox. They're not particularly sexy headlines, but City do that as well. Um, Having local school children come in and uh, have education uh, lessons in the Etihad complex, that's not a sexy headline, but City do that too. So there's, there's a lot of things that you know, get swallowed up because uh, football is so all-encompassing and people almost want to be envious, I think, of the wages footballers earn. But let's be honest, they only earn that money because gullible fools like us are willing to pay for <laughs> lots of membership, cards and shirts and, and all the rest mm. of it. You know, we have a choice in this. We yes. can say, I'm not doing it. I, I, I can't afford it or I don't agree with it and I'm not doing it. Now, to be fair, some people do. But, you know, they, they get paid relatively to what the market uh, is willing to pay. I'm not saying that's right, but it's, it's reality. Sure. Um, what worries me more about English football and, and football worldwide is that the big clubs, and I include City in this, incidentally, are getting so big that the smaller clubs down down the pyramids, uh, and we've seen this already with the demise of Berry, a very historical club who won the FA Cup twice at the turn of the last century. They went bust last year, and a lot of other clubs, particularly with COVID-19, 
are essentially living hand to mouth. I think the bigger clubs, and again, I include City, I think they could help those clubs because without a pyramid, you're left with, with the greatest respect, Jesse, a North American system of closed leagues. Hmm. And I, I don't particularly like, I know we have that in Australia as well, but that's for a slightly different reason. Uh, and we are looking to change that. But closed leagues, I don't think uh, football fans want. I don't think they want a European Super League. I don't think they want a Premier League that is so utterly divorced from the rest of the pyramids that it bears no relation to each other. Football is an ecosystem and it should be interconnected. And the big clubs, yes, they're, they're massively important and they generate the wealth, but they also still you know, dip into the lower reaches for players. And if those smaller clubs get promoted, they have to play those two. You still need opposition. Mm. So I, I think we have to be very careful where we're going with all this at the moment. I want to talk about that further, but I just wanted to, while you were talking, you're bringing up all these memories I had when I was living over there and you talk about craziest <laughs> headlines that you heard. And I, I would have forgotten it otherwise, but I remember the story of Mario Balotelli driving down the streets, throwing cash out the top of his car into the streets. Mm. Uh, a city guy, if I'm not mistaken, for, <laughs> for a few years there before he uh, went off to, to Italy. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned closed system, though. I think uh, Australia does present something different because we're the size of the U.S. with one eleventh the population. So I think it's, I think it's pretty hard to have promotion relegation in some of these towns that have fifteen thousand people. But um, you talk about a, a closed system uh, again. I think hockey, like the NHL, could be NBA or basketball. But at the end of the day, uh, generally speaking, soccer players, the top tier of those sports, are still making more money than closed circuit leagues. Yes, they are. Um, and that's, you know, certainly in England, that's due in part to the fact that uh, the Premier League has such a, a global presence. Um, now, if you want to go into politics and culture, you could say that one of the reasons for that is that uh, back in the day, uh, England or Britain, you know, conquered half the world and turned it, turned it pink. Uh, I'm not saying that was the right thing to do, by the way, but it's a fact. Um, so there's a lot of English-speaking peoples around the world. Uh, and English, of course, due to America, is the international language. So, you know, the Premier League was very transportable to uh, most countries across the world. And I think it was the advent of the Premier League that sort of recognised that and thought, you know what, we're going to cash in on that. And they have done. And they've made it the most commercially successful football league, maybe even sporting competition on the planet. Um, now, they're to be commended for doing that. Uh, in the process, has that divorced them from reality in terms of the money that's slopping around the game? Yeah, probably. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, that's, you know, that's the way of things with, with big business, isn't it? Which is what football is. I mean, you can say the same for, you know, Amazon or Yahoo or, you know, once they go global, they, they lift into a different stratosphere and it's, it's sometimes a little bit hard to relate to them. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the capitalist world we live in, I, I guess. Mm. Uh, it is fascinating because, as I said before, I was a fan. I mean, it's truly the world game. So we've, you know, we've flown over to Singapore to go watch Arsenal play, you know, the preseason tours that are you know, pretty much just cash cows for them for the for the opportunity to go have beer on a holiday it's 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 a very fascinating thing to to watch now that I'm, I'm kind of part of it um before we go into a league type stuff 
uh, well, you were you would have been around. What do you remember about the era of, of football hooliganism? I'm I'm just looking over at my bookshelf, and I can see these John King books. Um, who was the author of of all these sort of the I guess I, I almost want to call them the equivalent of um, Anthony Burgess Clockwork Orange of football <laughs> literature at the time. Um, it's still a pretty infamous time, and and a lot of people either outsiders who, who who aren't European either associate again football with sort of this this game of diving or this really violent period in the eighties. Yeah, well, look, at, I lived through that. Um, that was the the decade when I was a teenager um, and started going to games on my own on those terraces. Um, traveling on the football specials, going on the supporters club coaches. Uh, did hooliganism exist? Yeah, absolutely. And there were, you know, a couple of incidents, but by and large, they were isolated. And I'm not trying to defend it, by the way, but they were groups of thugs looking for other groups of thugs to go and have a rumble with. And football was the vehicle they chose. Some of it was about defending territory and, you know, that macho stuff of my club against yours. But I've been to goodness knows how many football games in my life, thousands and thousands. And I can honestly say I've only ever felt threatened maybe once or twice. Um, once was at, uh, coming back from a game at Liverpool in the mid-80s uh, where we inevitably lost. And uh, I saw a fellow City supporter get slashed with a knife on, mm. on, on the train. Um, so that wasn't inside the football stadium, but obviously it was football related. Um, the other time was at Stoke again, 1989, I think it was. And this was, it was a game when City took 12,000 supporters to the old Victoria ground and, and almost sort of took over the, the local stadium. And obviously, you know, the locals didn't like that. And they came out and had a bit of a pop and I think I got kicked once or, but really it was, it was there, but it was only there if you wanted to be involved in it. Um, and I never did. I mean, I was approached a couple of times, <clears throat> you know, each club had their own little firm. Um, you know, it's all beer and bravado stuff, really. You know, the cities was called the cool cats or the, the young governors. And, you know, once or twice they'd shove a card in my hand and say, come and join the young governors. I'd say, no, thanks. I'm not interested. Because I was never there for that. I, w- I was there for football and yeah, it got a bit edgy at times and you know, you'd, you'd do a bit of posturing and, but I always felt that most of the other blokes were like me, you know, they were there for the football. They were there for the crack. They, they'd had a couple of beers. They might get a bit mouthy and it was all part of the, you know, the game really, but uh, what get involved in fist fights and flick knives and, you know, pitch battles. No, no thanks. I know it happened. Um, to me, the, the bigger danger in the 80s was, and, and tragically, obviously, we saw this uh, with Hillsborough, was that the stadiums were horribly dilapidated. Um, you know, I stood on that Leppings Lane te- uh, terrace a couple of times in Sheffield <clears throat> prior to that um, Hillsborough disaster. I was also on the Kipax uh, May 1985 when City got promoted against Charlton. There were 48,000 there, and I remember being very uncomfortable on the terrace. I was only 17, 18, and I was squashed, but it was more that I couldn't get my arms up and it wasn't that I couldn't breathe. 
Um, but I remember, you know, getting out at the end and thinking, oh, that was a bit uncomfortable. Um, is it like the equivalent of, of being in a mosh pit at, at a heavy metal show? Is that sort of the, the, the sort of squish that you sort of feel in, in that sort of environment? Um, no, probably it was worse than that on that day because when the goals went in and we scored for that day, the crowd surges. Mm. So you, you get carried away. You get carried along with it. You have no choice. You can't yes. say, well, <laughs> you know, you just get boom, you're gone. And you, you, you normally got stopped by the crush barriers with 20 people behind you, which obviously winded you. Um, so they were dangerous places to a large degree, but it, it was of its time. And, um, you know, I, I, for one, I miss the atmosphere that the terraces provided uh, for all that they were run down and, and decrepit and in, in places dangerous. Most of the time you were perfectly safe and it created a, a great atmosphere. And I think we've lost a bit of that, to be honest. Was it, um, was it just a couple of years? Was it a five-year period? Was it a decade of, of that sort of, um, you know, the violence surrounding it? Because it seemed that by the early 90s, they had, had stomped it out. But as someone who would have been too young around that time, I'm just trying to put some time frames around when this would have been going on. Yeah, look, it, it probably started in uh, early 70s. Okay. That, that's when the, it really started to kick off. I don't quite know why. Um, you know, maybe it was in the UK, it was a time of um, political austerity and political uncertainty in the early 70s. I think we had, you know, the three-day week, uh, power cuts, strikes, the winter of discontent, 1978. You know, this all has to be seen in context of the political situation, I think, of the day. Uh, the rise of punk rock, you know, with uh, young kids wanting to, to rebel against the system as they normally do. Mm. Well, at least they used to. I don't know whether they still do. Um, so I think all of that sort of contributed and that carried on and got probably more hardcore in the 80s uh, when you got fringe sort of criminal gangs becoming involved because they saw it, A, as a chance to have a go at other criminals uh, or B, more likely, the police. So, you know, there was a, around the early 80s in the UK and I remember this very vividly because obviously I was there you know, you, you had the threat of nuclear war, you had the rise of uh, AIDS. Um, uh, you also had Thatcher's Britain, which created a very unequal society. And there was a lot of anger uh, among young people growing up. Um, I was one of them. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I grew up in the north of England where, where jobs were at a premium. And, you know, we didn't know if we had a future, to be honest. So maybe this all had a, you know, a part to play in the hooligan culture, but I, I stress that I still think it, it was a very fringe activity. Um, out of all the thousands of games I went to in the 80s, I maybe felt unsafe maybe once, twice. Most just, weeks, you were fine. I, I remember we did a trip over to Serbia at the time, and um, we got sort of introduced to that rivalry between um, Red Star, and, and I can't remember who the other team is. And I'm Artisan. Partisan, yeah, I've still got, still got one of their cups, the black and white uh, mugs there. And they're talking to us about dur during the Yugoslavian Civil War, apparently, that that was sort of a, a breeding ground for, uh, for it was to take football hooliganism. And apparently, the, one of the main guys, I can't remember from either one of the clubs, effectively ended up running the, the militia for them during the... Um, I think that was Arkan, wasn't it? Arkan, okay. So it, this is quite a familiar story then to, to Europeans at, at the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
so what actually happened with Hillsborough then? So again, because growing up, I didn't hear anything about this until it sort of got back in the news that they were finally, um, I think what were the, the equivalent of a royal commissioner, they're finally going to reopen this case, you know, 20 years after the fact. And a couple of years ago, something was, was handed down. But um, again, as, as outsiders looking in, it seemed that um, standing room only, um, fenced off terraces where people got squished. And then it became an argument of were the crowds too violent versus was it heavy-handed policemen who locked them in there to die, I guess, as an outsider looking in? Well, unfortunately, as the case has proven, it was the latter. Um, for many years, the popular narrative was that it was hooliganism that had, caught, that had caused Hillsborough. And I know up until very recently, that still prevailed even here in Australia. Um, what happened on the day was, uh, you know, too many people were trying to get into the stadium and the police opened the gates negligently, but they only opened once or two specific gates, which led these supporters down into this particular part of the ground known as a pen, which was already uh, full to capacity. So of course, when you, you know, it's, it's like filling up a milk jug, isn't it? You fill it to capacity and then you try and put a bit more in and, there's nowhere for the milk to go. Mm. So that's, that's where, unfortunately, people started getting crushed, not only against the crush barriers, but also in their attempts to get out, of course. They couldn't because at the time, fans were fenced in because they were frightened of pitch invasions and hooliganism. So it was sort of the double whammy, really. Now, I'm not saying that the police deliberately tried to kill supporters. Of course they didn't but they were negligent in, in what they did and basically led people unwittingly to their deaths by opening those two pens in order to relieve a crush outside. Um, now, whether that was a tale of miscommunication or, or I think that's probably been proven since. I think the, uh, you know, the chief commander of the day, I think it was Richard Duckinfield, his name is, who's uh, since been prosecuted, was was new to that job and, uh, hadn't necessarily, you know, gone through the procedures, safety procedures correctly, which of course, as you know, the arbiter of law and order on the day, he should have done. There was also question marks against the safety certificate of, of Hillsborough as a ground. Certainly the Leppings Lane Terrace was, as I mentioned already, in common with many other terraces, very old, very decrepit, probably not been updated since, you know, the 1930s. A lot of English mm. grounds were like that up until the 90s. Um, and all of those factors contributed to, uh, tragically, 96 football fans losing their lives that day. And what compounded that loss of life was the narrative that ran in the media for the best part of the next 20, 30 years, which said that they were to blame. And that not only were they to blame, but, you know, they stole from uh, their fellow fans uh, as they died and, you know, urinated on them and, terrible really um and unfortunately that was the story that was pretty much agreed upon um to you know cover up the police's role in it um and it's only now that the truth has has come to light and finally those families have got you know some semblance of justice if, if you want a better take on this by the way you should read a book called uh, and the sun shines now by an author called Adrian Tempany, who was in the crowd at Hillsborough and very nearly died. He was pulled to safety 
uh, at the last minute. And uh, his book is all about uh, those moments, but also what happened afterwards and their fight for justice. It's a, it's a very moving, very powerful book. Do you think so many years later, okay, I'll rephrase this question. During mm. the time when um, the fans themselves were blamed, was was that believed by the general public at the time? It's probably yeah. easier. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. perception has changed now now with with the findings? Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it's changed now, but A, it's taken 30 years, and B, it's taken a court case uh, for the truth to come out. <clears throat> excuse me. I've got a frog in my throat. Right. Uh, when really the uh, you know the truth should have been got out an awful lot quicker to give those families you know, peace of mind. In, in effect, they've, you know, they've been punished twice for one tragedy. Uh, they lost a family member and they were also vilified, you know, posthumously for causing it. Um, so it's been a long battle for justice. And yeah, I'm not sure it's been, you know, it's come to a conclusion totally satisfactorily for, for all parties concerned. But uh, certainly I think that now that the perception has changed and people realise that actually the police, uh, I, I don't want to use the word were to blame, but they were responsible mm. um, because they didn't do their job properly on the day. Fair enough. Um, we'll bring it over to Australian, uh, Australian football, which I, I'm a little bit more comfortable with now that I, I get to, hear you some up to three three days a week during during the summer months um one of the things that the a-league has done uh which which bothers me quite a bit is over the last few years they have one of the things that makes football great to go to is the chanting is the boisterous crowds and the a-league has done an incredible job of stamping out the fun in football effectively by killing off the groups that made it worth going to watch which to a lot of the people that i've brought who as you said with um especially here in australia with people that um really could like, you can offer them free football tickets and they won't even want to go you get them there and they see this going on that enough and in some cases depending upon who's playing uh, i might mention the mariners versus whoever in this case is more entertaining than the actual game itself that's happening on the field and it seems that the, the A-League has done its best to, to rid the most entertaining aspect of the game. Uh, I mean, you would have seen it. You were around at the time. What was happening then? Uh, because a lot of this active support hasn't come back, even though they have tried to shirk away from that and try to encourage that again. Well, first of all, can I say you're absolutely right? Um, you couldn't be more right. Uh, unfortunately, what happened... And this goes back to 2015 uh, and an article written by um, the late Rebecca Wilson in the Sunday Telegraph. Is this where she called football fans more violent than league and thuggish? Is, I remember this controversy because it made national news the next day, I think, from it. Yep. It's head, headline she, news. Well, she, she ran a front page article, or the Telegraph ran a front, front page article um, <clears throat> with photos of 198 football supporters uh, saying they were all hooligans and saying that, you know, football was a game of disgrace that couldn't control its, uh, its lunatic fringe. and The game was in all sorts of trouble. And I mean, look, it was a ridiculous story. 
Um, of course, you know, we have people on ban lists, and I'm not saying some of those uh, on the front page didn't deserve to be there, but a lot of those uh, photos of people that appeared were of uh, people who were underage, people who'd been found guilty of no more than either being drunk and disorderly or um, invasion of a pitch after scoring a goal. I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, but, you know, it's not exactly as though you're going stabbing somebody. Mm. Um, and the picture was painted of, of a game that was chaotic, and it, it, it just was not true. It was not true. A lot of us were very angry about it, including me. Um, and on the Tuesday of that following week, the FFA had to stand up and have a press conference, essentially, to address this particular issue. Unfortunately, David Gallup, the, the, the CEO or the then CEO of the FFA, and look, I like David. I'm, I know him reasonably well professionally. I've always got on fine with him. But unfortunately, his uh, response that day was woefully inadequate. Um, we expected him to stand up and essentially say, look, we have the best fans in the country. We might have wanted to idiots and we'll root them out, but you know, our, our fans provide the great atmosphere. We'll defend them to the hilt. That was what he should have said as the CEO of the game. And I, instead, he defended the article. I think the other thing that's quite surprising staggering. from him, for people that don't know him, is he used to be the CEO of Rugby League, which has its own, uh, not, not just aggressive fans, but the behavior of the players in, in many cases. It's, um, you know, outside of the rules of the game, the next law of the game is how much you're going to fine them for out-of-play activity that, uh, that goes beyond the means. So I, I, I agree with you. I was, I was very blown away by it. But um, I, I remember that, and it just seemed to instantly... And especially for people that don't follow the game, even though I'm not a fan of the club like the Victory, they had multiple active support groups happening that those active support groups in in and of themselves was pretty much enough to carry over a membership of a club year to year. Well, I was just going to finish off by saying that the, you know what happened on the back of that was the response from the fans to Gallup's press conference was, that's it, we're out. Now, to be fair to him, two days later, they did a second press conference because their resp the response to the first was so bad. And he did come out and say all the right things. Too late. Too late. They clamped down hard on the active supporter groups. One or two needed to be weeded out because there were some idiots in there. But they used a sledgehammer to crack a nut in order to try and appease the mainstream. And this is the mistake that the game has made over and over and over again in its bid to try and be part of the mainstream scene, it has appeased what it thinks the mainstream wants. What we need to do as a game is sell our own sport on its own merits. And a big part of that is the atmosphere that fans provide. I maintain in the first couple of years of the Wanderers, 2,000 people turned up every week to watch the RBB because they were so created such a brilliant atmosphere. That's what football is about. And we were building that and we self-destructed. We killed it ourselves. And so far, we haven't been able to get it back, which is, it makes me very, very angry, to be honest, that we did that. Um, but that was our leaders at the time. And the reason they did it is because they weren't football fans. They didn't really understand football culture. Now, we do have a CEO today in James Johnson, who's an ex-player himself. He understands the game perfectly well. He's worked for FIFA, AFC the PFA, he gets it. Um, is it too late to you know, get those fans back? I hope not. 
Um, but he's got a tough job on his hands, but we've got to try. Mm. Um, th- there's going to be a, a lot of people listening to this that if they've chosen to listen so far about soccer or football or however you deem it, about what Australian football is like, um, that'll be interesting to me because you will know more about the game have, having grown up with it. Um, again, one of the things that's very strange to me, as, a, as I said, as a convert myself, as someone who didn't grow up, only got engulfed in it because I was there. And when I came back, I said, I want to have a team support and got involved in it. I'm blown away by the fact that so many people will have a European team, but this seems to be the one sport where they will not get on board with a local side in the comp. Frankly, I, I don't understand it at all of, of why you could say I'm, I'm happy to wake up at two in the morning and watch city play on a Sunday night, but I won't go down to the local sports ground to go support my team for 20 bucks on a Friday. First of all, I don't understand that. But in terms of, um, actually, let's talk about that for a second, because you know exactly what I'm talking about. What, what is the issue? Yeah. Well, the, the issue, as, as with a lot of issues in football in Australia, is multi-layered. Um, some of it is history. Um, you know, obviously, this is a country of immigrants. I'm English. You're Canadian. Yeah, everybody in this country is from somewhere. Mm. So we tend to bring our own culture with us to a large degree, particularly when it comes to football, because football is you know, the game in most other countries in the world. So if you come from England, as I did, you know, I bring Manchester City with me just because I'm here. It doesn't make me stop supporting Manchester City. But a lot of people, you know, do also have a local team, but a lot can't because they're too tied to that former club. Or if you're from Greece, you know, Ajax Athens or Panathinaikos or Olympiakos, or if you're from Serbia, Partizan or Red Star, or if you're German, Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund, whatever it is. So that, that's part of the problem. The, the second issue is uh, an issue of snobbery, um, which says this league's not good enough. I'd, you know, I can watch the Premier League. Why would I need to watch the, the A-League? The standard's no good. But... My, my counter-argument to that is, well, okay, if, if it's only the Premier League and maybe one or two others, La Liga, the Bundesliga, that are worth watching, why do we have a global game? Why do we have professional leagues in two, over 200 countries? What about all those people? Should they just not bother with their team as well? The difference is tribalism. Now, part of why we don't have it here to the same degree is, as I've mentioned, you know, everybody here, here is from somewhere else and they, they keep that identity. The second big reason is, is that our A-League clubs are pretty new. You know, they only have 15 years of history, mm. um, as opposed to those in Europe that have well over 100. So, you know, the, the history of the sport in this country is very fractured. The National Soccer League, uh, you know, worked well for a while, produced some great players, but ultimately died because uh, people were, uh, you know, supporting those, but they were tribal about those clubs. But... Over the generations, if you were a supporter of a Greek uh, club of Greek heritage... It was too ethnically organised, effectively. Yeah, it was too ethnically organised. And, and, you know, as as the generations went on, that passion for the homeland sort of diluted a little bit, at least with regards to the local club. So there's a whole host of, of reasons. There's also you know, some cultural resistance towards football in general in Australia. <laughs> I'm mm. saying some. There's a lot yes. of cultural resistance towards football in Australia. And the other codes, AFL and Rugby League in particular, who aren't international sports, know that if they cede ground to soccer here, then they're stuffed and they're not going to give up that territory likely. So you know, they have a very compliant media, which works for them. 
They have people who, you know, push buttons for government and, and big corporate uh, industries in Australia. So they swallow up most of the dollars. So we can't promote our games. We, we have very little cash in football in Australia. So th th there's a whole heap of things that, that are, are trained up against the success of the A-League here in Australia. And really, just in closing on this particular point, it's a miracle that the A-League not only exists, but does so well in many ways. You know, the fact that we went from uh, ground zero in 2005 to a league, even today, and we say, oh, the crowds are poor today, but it averages 10,000. A lot of leagues around the world would kill for that average crowd. Is that we right? Live yeah. TV deal, we have a $57 million a year investment from Fox, um, big sponsors. We have a national team that's played at the World Cup uh, the last four occasions. Matilda's doing really well. You know, as a game in general, we're not quite as bad as, as we think we are. Um, but again, it's always put into that prism of what's it like in comparison to the Premier League or the Bundesliga or the Rugby League or the AFL. Well, of course, we're not at that level. But the overall, the bigger picture ain't too bad. I don't disagree with you. I've, I've been a, a member of my club for a number of years and I, I enjoy... Um, because again, I wasn't born a racer, so when I came back from the UK, to me, summer means football now. I think that's a great way to spend the day. But um, in the, in the few chances that they have, so I remember I, for for what I do for business, I got the chance to speak with Scott Barlow, who is the chairman for Sydney FC, and this would have been going back about five years ago. And I remember even back then, he was telling me how close they are to a free-to-air deal. That has never materialized, and the few times that they have seemed to put it on free-to-air television. Well, we've got ABC. It bounced between SBS and then ABC. We, we know that. But it suggested that they were getting a deal because I remember they tried some a couple of trial Saturday night games on nine, I think, as, as Sydney Derbies that happened. But um, never seemed no, to, to get off. Channel, Channel 10 had uh, the rights for two years um, as a subsidiary broadcaster of Fox Sports. Um, but unfortunately, they put it on their secondary channel and didn't really promote it. Um, so it didn't particularly rate. Um, SBS and ABC have both had, you know, stints at, at, at showing free-to-air games. Um, but you're right that, it, you know, one of the big commercial players has not so far come in uh, and invested in football. And that in part is due to the fact that they, uh, you know, they invest an awful lot more in Aussie rules, cricket, rugby league. So football is well down the pecking order. Um, but I think, just to preempt your, your next question, you know, I think we're, we're moving into an era where free-to-air television and pay television even is, is changing. You know, we're all moving towards this digital future, which in many ways is going to level up the landscape a lot because you are no longer restricted to your own local market, but you can go global. You can literally broadcast your games anywhere in the world. Um, I think that's going to benefit us as a sport because we're a global game. The others aren't. Nobody's going to get up in the middle of the night in, you know, even Indonesia to watch a game of AFL. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Mm. But they might watch the A-League and a lot of countries do even now. We have deals with uh, the US, Canada, I think, as well. Parts of Africa, Europe, the UK show it uh, on BT Sport. It doesn't have a massive audience, but it has a niche audience. People watch it because it's football. And football being the global game, I think, will always ultimately win. And people gamble. 
yeah, um, what, what do you think of the league itself? So, so again, um, as I said, when I talk to people, a lot of people that I know that have European teams that won't follow it here. And they, there's a lot of disparaging comments about it. Realistically, again, because I can't really gauge the quality. A lot of people told me it sits somewhere between championship and league one. Is that accurate to you? Um, to be honest, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to me. Um, would, would some of the early clubs survive in the championship? Yeah, I think so. Um, would some of them struggle? Undoubtedly. Um, it's the same as any other league. There are good games, there are bad games, there are good players, there are bad players. It's just that we constantly look at the A-League through this prism of, but what's it like in comparison to this? Mm. Who cares? It's football. It's our league. It's our local competition. It's the best we have in this country. Why don't we support it on that basis alone? I told you early on in this chat, you know, 1999, I used to go and watch Man City in the third division in England. Let me tell you, that year, we were bloody awful. We were terrible. We were a third division team that lumped the ball up in the air and tried to get second ball, you know, for, for Sean Gota. They were awful to watch. Didn't matter. It was my club. So I was there week in, week out anyway. That's what we have to build here. It's not about, and we've had this before. Oh, if they play better football, I'll come and watch. Well, let me tell you, in 2010-11, under Ange Postacoglu, Brisbane Raw played football that wouldn't have been out of place in Europe. They were sensational. Now their crowds are back down below 10,000. So what, what did that achieve? Mm. People didn't stick with them just because they played good football. They didn't stick with them because they didn't have a tribal affiliation to that football club. Yeah. And that's what we have to build. And people say, oh, get, you know, get marquees and you need big names. What happens when they leave? You know, do, you should not fall in love with the player. You fall in love with the badge on the front of his shirt. That's mm. the connection that we have to uh, make in this country. And we, too often we either ignore it or we just don't recognize it. The, the same argument was said for Sydney FC in their, their recent, what, last four years of utter dominance. I think by year two, they realized that they, the crowds of 1850 wouldn't get any higher than that, no matter what time of day they were playing on a Saturday or anything, and just trying to um, adjust to that. Do you, where do you think Australian football goes from here? And again, I, I'm talking about the dominance of Sydney FC right now because they, they seem to be the ones pushing because they have the money, again, that, that we might begin to see a little bit more of what we see in England with. Um, I don't know the rules ins and out, but I, I think there's a salary cap is except for you get one, one domestic marquee and now two international marquees. Yeah. And, and two even months, that months. seems to blow out, as I mentioned. I, I'm up in Newcastle now. Central Coast is just an hour below me. Um, you know, I think Sydney FC only started turning over a profit recently, but, but they've got the sort of owners that can afford to, to put in that for the purpose of no more than fun. Where do you think that begins to, to leave the league when realistically, as I said, we're, we're the size of the U.S. with 26 million people with a lot of the markets that we're playing in sub a million people? Well, look, I don't think we've explored our big clubs uh, well enough, to be honest. Um, we're obsessed in this country with equality, which is why we have these silly salary caps. 
um, which I'm sorry, don't work in football because you're competing in a global game. You're competing in a global market for players. It, it works in Aussie rules and rugby league because they're not played anywhere else. The best talent in the world is always going to be here. They might move clubs, but they'll always be in Australia. Now, we don't have that. If we don't pay for, for quality, players move on. Now, we're never going to be the Premier League. We can't offer Yaya Toure £200,000 a week. Nobody's expecting that. But at the moment, you know, we, we, we lose even mid-tier players to Asia for the sake of twenty thirty thousand $30,000 because we can't squeeze them into the cap. Does that help the quality of the league? I don't think so. We're, we're so obsessed with equality. Everybody's got to have an equal chance to win it. Well, that's not the way the world is. That's not the way football is. You have big clubs, you have small clubs. Now, if you got rid of the salary cap and said you can spend what you want, what you can afford, yes, Sydney FC, Melbourne City, Western Sydney Wanderers, Melbourne Victory would win more titles than most. That's happening now anyway. So what's the difference? The Central Coast Mariners have finished bottom three out of the last four seasons and are on track to do so uh, again this year because they can't afford even to spell, uh, spend the full salary cap. So how is that help it, helping with equality? It's not. We, we have to have more of a, um, uh, an open system, I think, uh, in terms of the finances. Uh, I do also think we desperately need a second division um, for player pathways as much as anything else and coaches. Um, but also to, to stimulate interest at the bottom of the A-League. You can have a game between ninth and 10th, um, even with, you know, four rounds to go. And it means nothing because next year they'll go around the same again. It's like getting a certificate in the egg and spoon race for just taking part. You know, we, we've got to have punishment for failure and reward for success. Isn't that um, what the NPL, well, the we, N, we don't have that yet, but isn't the NPL supposed to be that? Society, hmm? Isn't the Sorry, NPL supposed to act in that way? Well, no, because there's no, there's no promotion and no relegation to or from it. So, yes, it's supposed to develop players, um, which it does. But another issue is, and again, this goes back to the finances, uh, the amount of compensation that is offered to an NPL club for developing a good player, which is taken by an A-League club, the maximum they can get is $3,000. Right. Where's, you know, where's, where's their... Um, stimulant to, to go and develop those players. It's not there because there's no reward in it for them. Mm. So we have a, a system in this country that is very much based around what the other codes do. I understand why that's the case, but we're surely now at a point of our development where we've got to say, that's all well and good. If you want to do that, you carry on doing that. But we're football. Our sport is different because it's a global game and therefore we have to act differently. Are there moments or, 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 or games that, that you recommend to people? If, if people go, I check this out, are there particular games that you remember and say, this is what I think you should watch? Uh, talking about a non-A-League fan, if I was trying to attract them to a game? Hmm. Um, there's many. Um, I would certainly uh, tell them to go and watch a Sydney derby. Hmm. Certainly one from a few years ago, which is still on YouTube, where... Uh, I think Karen Bullitt scored twice and, and Sydney still won 4-3. Pack Stadium, um, that would certainly be one game. The, the grand final of 2011, Brisbane Central Coast Mariners, incredible drama. Brisbane came from 2-0 down with, uh, I think, five minutes to go. It was extra time, I think, when they scored both. Ultimately won. Yeah. 
Um, and another one involving the Wanderers and, and Brisbane Roy in the finals a few years ago, in which Brisbane were 3-0 up at half time and ended up losing 5-4 after extra time, I think. So there's, there's loads of great games in the A-League. There's, there's a lot of you know, ordinary games as well. That, that's just sports, mm. whatever the, the code. Um, but we, we've, got, we've had some incredible moments. In fact, just the other day, I, was, I, was, I did one of these uh, you know, Zoom things with a few other uh, people. We, were to, we had to try and narrow it down 32 of the best moments in the A-League's history. And we found it really difficult because there were mm. a lot. Right. Okay. Um, more from a, a business perspective, and again, I, I'm sitting on the sidelines, so I haven't followed it uh, recently, but I remember going back about a year ago, there was a, a huge, there's a power struggle at the moment. So F- Frank Lowy effectively bankrolled the A-League going back about 15 years ago, and, and he stepped down. No? I, he, he, he was the chairman. chairman. He, he certainly didn't bankroll it. <laughs> okay, so I'd rather help, help yes. put it all together. Help put a lot of the moving pieces together. Is, it, is that a better way of, of wording it? Yes. Okay. Um, and once he stepped down, his his son effectively sort of moved into that role. And there seems to be a, a very big issue now between, uh, again, the league controlling the league or allowing teams a level of uh, autonomy to operate. Can you... That's what I know about it. Am I correct in saying this? And, and can you shed some light on this for us? Yeah, look, broadly, uh, it's a very complex um, topic, this one. So essentially, when Frank Lowy stood down in 2015, and his 10 years, by, by and large, were very successful as, as chairman, uh, maybe with the exception of the World Cup bid, but uh, that, that's another story completely. When he stepped down in 2015, as per constitution, uh, the governing body looked for a successor and lo and behold, they found him across the dinner table um, and it was Frank's son, Stephen. Now, again, I, I met Stephen many times, um, you know, really like him, but he wasn't the right choice for the game at the time. It, it, it smacked of nepotism, even if it wasn't. Um, and I, I think the clubs in particular because they hadn't had much of a say. The way that the Congress was uh, split was 90% state federation vote and only 10% A-League vote. And it was, it was structured that way for a reason, so that the federation could keep a tight hold on the finances of the game, which were and still are very fragile. So it was done for a reason, but the A-League clubs had got to a point where they, they wanted more of a say. And I understood that and I sort of supported them to a large degree because a lot of the owners had put in millions of dollars. I think collectively they've lost over 400 million in the 15 years of the A-League. And they wanted a bit of a return. Um, And more importantly, they wanted a say in in how the league was run. Um, Unfortunately, the subsequent board under the leadership of Stephen Lowy was very loath to give them that bigger say. And the upshot was essentially a three-year governance war, which took the intervention of FIFA and various other bodies to ultimately resolve. And Stephen uh, resigned his post in 2018. The Congress is now much more democratic. Unfortunately, uh, we still haven't made much progress on the financial side of things. And that's where really the clubs, to a large degree, uh, need to be held accountable because they haven't delivered on what they said they were going to deliver, which is a much more profitable A-League and a better A-League. They haven't done it. So uh, what do you think needs to be done then? I guess is the next natural question. 
Well, I still think that the, the, the governance of the game needs looking at. Um, I think it needs a much more streamlined um, central body. At the moment, we have essentially 10 governing bodies in Australia, the FFA and the nine states. I think that's nine too many. Mm. I think we need one with maybe state advisory boards or regional bureaus with professional management um, to implement central policy. At the moment, they all seem to go off and do their own thing. Um, in terms of the A-League, as I say, I think we need a proper plan to, to resuscitate it. We need the active fans back. We need a second division. We need promotion relegation. We need outside investment because the game is grossly undercapitalized, which is at the root of all its problems, really. Um, and, and we need a plan. You know, we need a, a unified, achievable plan. The uh, same as many other countries have done. Japan, for example, has a 100-year plan, and they're a long way down the line in that already. Uh, we seem to be reactive rather than proactive. We're constantly firefighting. We're constantly in crisis, uh, trying to find the next dollar to you know sort out that particular issue, and then we move on to the next one. Um, it would be it would be great to see. A, a, a plan that is supported by all the stakeholders in the game um, to take us forward and actually fulfil the potential of this sport. Because with two million participants, we're by far the biggest sport in the country, but we just can't capitalise upon it and haven't been able to for 50 years. That was going to be my next question because you, you're not the first person that's told me this, that the um, participation levels of youth in, in football dominate other codes. Why isn't that translating... Um, to, to an audience of participation at, uh, as they go through their, their more formative years? Well, again, uh, you know, as, as I outlined earlier, I think there is, um, there's not much of a connection between the A-League clubs and the community because mm. they're new. Um, a lot of people in this country, if they like football, they support a club from overseas, maybe because of their heritage or because they watch the Premier League on television. And also the other codes, as I've already said as well, you know, they're not going to give up that ground lightly. They're the more established codes in terms of their senior competitions. They've been going for years and years and years, much longer than we have. And people have those codes and those clubs in their DNA. So that's going to take, you know, generations really to, not that you want to shake off, you know, their allegiance to a rugby league club or an AFL club, but to build an allegiance to an A-league club takes time. And in actual fact, we haven't done a bad job in doing that in the 15 years um, that the A-League has been around. It's just that the last three or four in particular, we've stalled because of the governance wars and various other things. Um, and we need to get the focus back on the football. I went to, um, a couple of years ago, I, I attended an event by the Cauliflower Club, which is... Um, uh, it's one of the monthly meetings by by rugby union, and they were sitting down. And they were talking about um, like why had union fallen so far behind uh, other areas, and they had a panel of speakers, and it was hosted by uh, Moose uh, Adrian Skeggs, who was a former Wallaby, and they went through and they were talking about AFL, and apparently AFL has dedicated one billion dollars of investment over twenty years into women's football, and they had done the research and what they decided to do, and I, my understanding from when watching um, or attending this is that this is the part of the reason for their investment in women's football is this amount of money because through all of their research, what they had identified is that women, the wives in a marriage are the primary decision makers of what sport children play. So they have decided that if they can get women on board to play AFL 
from when they're younger realize that it's a safe sport, they'll carry that love through to those formative years of when they're raising children between the ages of, you know, one through seven, introducing them to sport. And I found it, I, I just found it absolutely fascinating that sort of foresight of what a real plan looks like. And then of course we find out from that free ticketing to women's AFL games, women's AF, the granny leads right into the men's season. It was, it's quite an outstanding outlook for, again, AFL may not have the global reach, but that that's vision as far as I'm concerned. Of course it is. Of course it is. And they're to be commended for that. Uh, however, what you also have to say, they, are, they have an awful lot of inherent advantages that they are using to their, uh, to their own greater good, which is you know, fully with it, uh, within their rights to do. Uh, for a start, they have a much bigger TV deal than we do, mm. so they can invest a lot more of that money. Secondly, they have no national teams that they have to finance. So they don't, they're not sending nine national teams as we are all over the world to play in competition. So they can focus very much uh, locally. Uh, thirdly, they operate the levers of power within government and corporate Australia very, very well. They have you know, people positioned in, in areas of influence. Uh, and finally, and most importantly, they have compliant media, as yeah. does rugby league, as does cricket. We don't. We have a hostile media. We have a media here that does not want our game to succeed. Uh, we have a media here that is almost, and I'm speaking at this current moment, almost entirely bereft of football journalists. I'm talking round ball football journalists. Mm. Over the last three or four years, we have lost in no particular order. Les Murray and Mike Cockrell, who both tragically passed away, nothing we could do about that. Sebastian Hassett has left uh, the football media. Um, David Davutovic has left the Herald Sun, Matt Winley has left the Herald Sun, Daniel Garb has left Fox Sports, Carly Adno has left Fox Sports, Ray Gatt has left the Australian, Emma Kemp has left the Daily Telegraph, um, Craig Foster has gone off you know, doing his own thing, which is, which is fair enough. Who's writing about football? Mm. Who's talking about football? Who's actually debating these issues? So the game of football in this country has been kept in its box by uh, uh, a media that you know, is, is much more enthralled to the other sports. And when they do write about soccer, and it's always soccer in a lot of these papers, it's about hooliganism, it's about diving. Mm. It's the old Shulers, Wogs and Pufters mentality. And that's because you have editors and executives who employ people who are like them. Yeah. who like Aussie rules, rugby league, cricket. So the whole thing perpetuates itself. I've worked in the media here for 17 years. I see it every day of my working life. Um, now, that's not me going, oh, poor us. It's up to us to change it. We have to do something about it because nobody's going to do it for us. Um, but we have to get real about these challenges. We have to recognise it for a start, that that's the landscape we exist in. And we have to set about formulating our plan, maybe with less dollars, Maybe it's not going to be quite as grand a scale as the AFL can do because we can't afford it. But we have to set in train a plan to take this game forward. At the moment, we're stuck in neutral. And as you know, in this country, because it's so competitive here, if you're in neutral, you're going backwards at a pretty quick rate of knots. Fair enough. All right. A couple more questions. International football, and then we'll talk about more of a, a, more of a passion thing, which is... I've, I've got about... Sorry, I've got about five minutes left i'm gonna have to go unfortunately let's talk about it now then so um what you had posted something that's why i I reached out to you about uh you've got a band that you play in and you're a fan of the new wave of british heavy metal 
which is, yes. it's an era that when I was a kid, it, it was my, my growing period of the music that I would get into that, that would be a little bit heavier than that. But um, just talk about that briefly for a moment. What, how did, the, the story is always, as always, as you get older, there's a group of closeted metalheads who never, never show or talk about their actual passions. It, it hides somewhere beneath everything else that they do. So I, I, was, I was very, very pleased to hear about this. Um, tell me how you became a fan and, and the bands that you're into. Um, well, probably about 10 or 11 years of age, uh, I wasn't really aware of music up until then. And a, a school friend of mine, I was around at his house and he said, uh, have a listen to this. And he put on a, you know, the old vinyl record on his, yes. on his record player. Uh, and it was uh, Burn by Deep Purple. Okay. And I remember being utterly blown away by what I'd just heard, and in particular the drumming of Ian Pace, uh, which I just thought was phenomenal. So, of course, I rushed back home and I got a couple of my mum's knitting needles and turned waste paper bins upside down and started trying to, you know, play what I'd just heard. And from that moment on, I, you know, I was massively into all those rock bands and uh, wanted to be a drummer. I got my first drum kit when I was 12 or 13, badgered the life out of my parents to buy me one. They said, no, 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 you can't have one. It's a fad and it'll make too much noise. And eventually they relented. <laughs> Um, and I've been in bands ever since, um, both in the UK and here in Australia. Um, probably my most famous moment in music was, well, there were two actually. I, we played the Greenbelt Rock Festival in Northampton in the UK, which uh, was quite big in front of about two or 3,000 people back in the day. It was 1986, I think. Okay. Um, and my band at Portsmouth, uh, the University of Portsmouth, we... We supported Eric Bell on the Sunsets. Eric Bell used to be the guitarist in Thin Lizzy, so I was quite proud oh, of that. Okay. Um, and here in Australia, I'm I'm now uh, drumming with a, a metal cover band called Green Manalishi. So, a priest it's, band, it's, is it? A, a, a tribute band, like a cover band. Yeah, it's a priest. Uh, it's called Green. No, Green Manalishi though. That's an old priest, Judas Priest yes. song. Yes, it is. Yeah, good spot. Because most people say, oh, isn't that Fleetwood Mac? Well, it was, but Judas Priest, uh, yeah, did a great version of it. So, um, yeah, we we play uh, covers of, of all the bands that I grew up loving, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Motorhead, Black Sabbath, um, the odd Sex Pistols one here and there. But, um, yeah, I loved I all say, those bands. Being English as well, were you a Saxon fan? Yes, they were Saxon were the first metal band I ever saw live, which was at the Manchester Apollo in 1984, and they were supported by Girls School. I don't know if you remember Girls School. Yeah, Girls School was out here last year. They they did an old retro 80s tour because I, I know I remember Girls School. They always used to. Um, there's like three or four Motorhead songs that they guest starred on because I'm I'm a big Lemmy guy. That that's yeah, uh, Sabbath, Lemmy, Priest are probably my my new wave of British heavy metal bands. Those are, I, I even like the Tim Ripper Owens, Judas Priest stuff. I'm, I'm big on that <laughs> stuff as well. I, I, I love it all. But, um, motorhead was, the, it was the big, we are the road crew. And, uh, I had all those cause even at the time when I was a kid, motorhead still probably would have been on there like 19th greatest hits or collection. You know, it was, it was, it, you got overkill, um, and then I think I got like live at the Hammersmith or something along those lines. And no, then it was no just... sleep till Hammersmith. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah. did you advance? Did you get any heavier? I guess is the next question. Did I get any heavier? 
Um, no, I'm sort of a man stuck in my time, really. Uh, look, I like a bit of the new stuff. I like a bit of Slipknot, not that it's new these days, but a bit of Linkin Park, um, Il Nino from a few years ago. But I, I, I tend to sort of stick with what I know and like. Um, I'll be, I'm in a bit of a time warp, unfortunately. Well, you always uh, are. Did go and see Maiden and Sabbath when they came out on tour here a few years ago. So enjoyed watching them both and their new albums. Have you listened to Sabaton? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you're going to love these guys. All they do is epic heavy metal about war. That's it. It's fantastic. Oh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. But look, as you said, you got to get going. I certainly don't want to take up any more of your time. But um, when when this whole thing comes back together uh once you roll into town i'd love to buy you a beer and, and just chat chat shop that'd be good mate look forward to it we can Excellent. talk metal absolutely well i appreciate your time simon hill um i've already had my beers you're well off to get into them now so thank you very much for your time tonight thanks jesse